It's great to be here with everyone. Um, I have to tell you what I saw this week. I get all my things out. Okay, remember we talked last week about the chariots in the movie Ben-Hur and how the Roman chariot, the black chariot, had those spikes coming out of the wheels like this far? This is true. Sunday, Ted and Tyler, our son and I, were in a car at a red light, stop, look next to us at a black truck with the same spikes coming out of the wheels. I mean, we couldn't, they looked almost exactly like the ones in the movie. So we almost rolled our window down and said, hey, have you been to Rome lately? But it was, I don't know how that's legal. I mean, if joggers saw it coming, they'd be taken off. It's scary. Anyway, glad to be here. Last week I mentioned after reading chapter 7, it was reassuring to remember we can trust in God's love for us. After reading chapter 8, I am excited to say we can trust in the security of our love for Christ and what he does for us. We can trust in that. And I was glad to think about that because I thought this was a frightening prophecy of chaos and conflict And no wonder it made Daniel so ill. There were kingdoms, there were kings, there were battles, there were armies, there were horns flying everywhere. Very uh, scary sort of things. And so I wanted to open up just by saying what my father-in-law loved to say. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We're secure in him. We live our todays, like Melody said, in faith for our tomorrow. We're secure Because of Christ. As long as we live in this world, we will experience conflict. And so we're going to talk about that as well, because this is a fallen world. And so because of Christ, we need not fear that conflict. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Look at 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9 with me. This is one secure text that I love. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the long definition of a Christian security. Short definition, two words, Jesus Christ. So we give him praise today. But what about the lost world, those who ignore God, uh, disdain God? What about their security? And the truth is they don't have that security. And so if we look around us, we can see the lost world just struggling, trying to find that security. And history has proven that societies will give up their freedoms in order to feel secure. And I really think that's the basis of chapter 8 in the book of Daniel. Verse 25 tells us when 
people felt secure, their leader will come and destroy many. In Daniel's vision, we see Gentile nations fighting for security that they think they will find in land and in power. And I wanted to mention in the first uh, seven chapters of the book of Daniel, Daniel writes in the Aramaic language, which the Gentiles, it's their language, and he was writing about the fate of the Gentile nations. From this point on, Daniel writes in Hebrew because he's going to be talking about the destiny of the Jewish nation in a Gentile world in the future. So the vision, let me just sort of summarize it. It came two years after the vision of the beast we talked about last week in chapter 7. This time Daniel's not asleep having a dream because they don't mention a dream here. This time he's awake when the vision comes. Um, He was still in Babylon, but in his vision he is transported to Persia, to the capital city of Susa. This would be 200 miles east of Babylon, on the Ulai Canal. Daniel finds himself standing at this future capital, even though it would be a decade before Persia would come to power at this point. This is where Persian monarchs would reside, powerful Persians. This is the palace or the citadel of the bear that we talked about um, last week. Persia was represented by a bear. It was the silver chest and arms of the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And here is Daniel. And we have to say, why would God have Daniel standing at the capital of Persia in this vision? And here's why. Daniel would be given important information concerning the Gentile political powers at the time. And he would be showing Daniel what the effect would be on the Jewish nation. So first, Daniel sees a powerful ram with two uneven horns. Reminds us, remember, of the bear that represented Persia last week, and it was uneven. Um, The ram is charging west and north and south. We can just envision other animals trying to pass the ram, and he just lifts them up and throws them to the side. He's dominant. He's strong. Um, He's dominating all the territory around himself. And I don't know, most of us in this room at some point in our life has been around a powerful animal that's out of control. And that is one scary feeling. I had to just throw in my little story of a few summers ago. We got to experience an out-of-control powerful animal. Uh, Ted and I and our daughter Cassie, we were in Colorado staying in a home. It was wonderful in the middle of the night. Ted hears some noise in the kitchen and thinks our daughter Cassie is up there. So he goes up the stairs, and our bedrooms are downstairs, kitchen's upstairs. He climbs up the stairs, and he sees something furry under the kitchen table, and he thinks, how did a raccoon get in this house? And then the raccoon stood up, and it was a bear. (laughs) And so the first thing he did was run downstairs. to try to see if we were safe. Of course, we were downstairs. We were safe. And then he just didn't know what to do, so he ran upstairs. Meanwhile, Cassie had woke up. And you know how when you're asleep and you can tell someone's right there and somehow... So I wake up, and Cassie's face is this close to mine, (laughs) looking over me in the bed, and she said, Mom, don't be afraid, but there's a bear in the house. (laughs) 
So then we were all up, and the funny thing is, she runs upstairs with Ted, and she grabs a conch shell. <laughs> Ted grabs his tennis shoe. And, of course, Ted wears a size 12 shoe, so it's pretty big, but I don't think it was going to stop the bear. And the bear sees them, and they sort of retreat to this corner, and the bear would hiss at them, run out from the kitchen. He said, it didn't growl at us, it hissed at us. And he would run out, you know, kind of look at them, and then he would run into this bedroom next to the kitchen. And they didn't know, they didn't know what to do. They're holding their shoe and their conch shell. And I'm downstairs hiding. And uh, <laughs> two or three times, the bear comes out, hisses, and acts all mean, and runs back in the bed. The bedroom. And all Ted's thinking about is, this house is going to be destroyed. Not only our lives, but this house is going to be destroyed. So finally, it doesn't come back out of the bedroom. And so they waited like 20 minutes before they got their little weapons and creeped back into the bedroom. And that bear had just pushed a window out and jumped out uh, from the bedroom. So that was a really fun time, experience, and out-of-control animal. <laughs> That's powerful. Pretty scary. But I'll never forget Ted with his tennis shoe in the dark. At this point in Daniel's dream, a wild, out-of-control goat comes on the scene. Daniel sees an aggressive goat with a large horn that breaks into four horns. It's moving so fast, it's not even touching the ground. It reminds us of that winged leopard that we read about in chapter 7. He comes from the west. He has one prominent horn. He's determined to destroy the ram. And he succeeds. He destroys that ram. He knocks it to the ground. We see the goat trampling over it. And we can envision this goat standing on top of a hill. Do you remember playing king of the hill when you were little? You'd push everybody off. You'd find some kind of mound and stand on top. Uh, I actually grew up where there was this family at our park by my house, bought all these crazy animals and had them in cages along the edge of the park, which was so fun for children because we could go and see them. But I used to go just to watch the goats because there'd be this little mud pile and there'd be this one goat on the top. <laughs> And those other goats would try to get up there, and it's just like the movies. He'd just knock them down, and he'd look and wait for the next one to come. Okay, that's what this goat is like. He is not budging, and he's already destroyed the ram. The problem is he weakens at some point, and the prominent horn breaks off. It's replaced by four horns growing toward the four winds of heaven, out of one of those four horns appears a small horn. Daniel sees a small horn that grows in power toward the beautiful land, Israel. And we read in our homework that that small horn does not stay small and insignificant. It grows, it grows in power, it grows in viciousness, it grows in cruelty, and it becomes dominant. And we have to ask ourselves, why would God allow this small horn to grow like this? And if you look at verse 12 in chapter 8, you'll see the answer is because of the rebellion. The rebellion of Israel, years of idolatry, years of disobedience, God allows the growth of this small horn. It grew in power to the south, to the east, 
toward Israel, the land that Jeremiah penned that God described as beautiful. Look on your verse sheet. The Lord said, how gladly would I treat you like sons and give you a desirable land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me, but like a woman unfaithful to her husband. So you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel. Daniel knows that even though the Jews have stained the land of Israel, it is still God's promise of a beautiful land for Israel. And this small horn tramples on the starry host from heaven. This is um, a phrase used to describe the children of Israel, the starry host. Where do we get that? Remember when God came to Abraham and he says, look up, come outside here, look up, look at the heavens, count the stars. If indeed you can count them all, so shall one day your offspring be. The starry host of heaven, that is God's people. The small horn persecuted, dominated the Jewish stars that God had put in place. It set itself up as the great prince of the host. This powerful horn has a wicked arrogance, equates himself as equal with God. We see the arrogance in his heart because he can't stand somebody else being worshipped. He can't stand that there are systems in place to honor and worship God. So he takes those over as his own and takes God's honors away from him. So by persecuting the people and the nation of Israel, this small horn that has grown big is fighting against God and his promises himself. It stole the daily sacrifice in the sanctuary every day. The Jews would come out to sacrifice. That was their time of worship. They began in the morning sacrificing a lamb, thinking about God and his gifts. They ended the day sacrificing another lamb, thinking about God's faithfulness through the day and his promises. He took that away. He replaced it with worship of him. He brought the sanctuary low. This small horn would have no regard for the sanctuary that's holy, God's sanctuary. He would outlaw Jewish worship, forbid sacrifices, outlaw feasts, celebrations, and then beyond what any Jew could imagine, defile the temple by creating an idol on the altar of the temple of God. It threw truth to the ground. The very words of God from the book of the law are destroyed. Okay, let's go back to Daniel now. He's still standing by the canal. What in the world? What is he feeling at this time when he has envisioned these incredible things happening to the God and the people and the land that Daniel loved? You can sense his confusion. You can sense how heavy his heart was. And at this very low point, it appears that the angels feel the same way he does. Look at verse uh, 13 as Daniel listens to these angels. And let me say this. Daniel's vision goes from what he sees here to what he's going to hear from this point on. Look at verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another one holy said to him, How long will it take for this vision to be fulfilled? 
the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. And the other angel says, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. The interpretation, Daniel's still standing there, he's confused, he's heard what the angels have to say, and suddenly the angel Gabriel stands before him. Now for you and I, that sounds really fun. For Daniel, I was like really scary. And if it wasn't frightening enough to be in the presence of an angel of God, he turns and begins to walk towards Daniel. This was a frightening moment for Daniel as he comes toward him. Why does Gabriel go to explain all of this to Daniel? Because God himself, speaking in a voice of a man at the canal, says, Gabriel, go to Daniel and explain the meaning of this vision that he's had. God is there. When God calls Gabriel by name, it's the first time in the Old Testament that any angel has been called a name by God and identified by a name. So this lets us know how important this vision from God was. Gabriel is translated the strength or the might of God. And we will see throughout the Bible Gabriel used and being put in charge of battles. That's why he's here now. This vision of Daniel's is about battles and fighting and dominance and kingdom power. But years later, Gabriel would go to Mary in the New Testament to tell her she would be the mother of the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Christ, because that was a battle as well between Satan and his demons and the Most High God. Gabriel's name reminds us at this point the only true remedy when we are facing battles is to go forward in the strength of our God. And so the strength of God approaches Daniel here. Look at verse 17. As Gabriel neared the place where Daniel was standing, he says, I was terrified and I fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. Okay, interesting, he fell into a deep sleep. This does not mean Daniel was tired at this point. This means he was scared. You heard the expression, scared to death. This is about what was happening to him. The word means he swooned. It was more like a faint. He's lying prostrate on the ground out of fear. Gabriel lifts him up. And Gabriel calls him son of man to begin speaking with him. Not the son of man. We learned last week there's only one, the son of man. That's Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. But he calls him son of man because he wants to remind him, you are but a weak man. But besides that point, despite your weakness, God has chosen to give you divine interpretation. And he tells Daniel, what you've seen involves the time of the end, the time of wrath, or your Bible may say the final period of the indignation. 
Daniel's vision will specifically refer to the time when afflictions are permitted on Israel under the rule of the Greek Empire. That is the goat, the goat that we've seen. And the wrath or indignation describes the divine discipline of God, again, for Israel's disobedience, for their idolatry and their unfaithfulness to him. And so when he comes to Daniel, Daniel would want to know, how long, Lord? How much longer will your divine discipline, will your hand be over the nation of Israel? Because remember, they're in Babylon. They're experiencing that divine discipline. Daniel's there with the rest of the Jewish nation as captives and those that want to remember their culture. Remember their God would wonder, how long will we be here under this discipline? And God continually gave them the answer even before they were captured and will continue to give them the answer. Look at Isaiah 1 on your verse sheet. And I want you to see God's compassion in it. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. We know that in Babylon, um, some remained faithful and many adopted the Babylonian culture as well as the gods of the Babylonians. And so the sword continues. History has proved this vision to be true, and we're going to look at that. Look at verse 20. This is what Daniel's telling, uh, Gabriel's telling Daniel. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. Okay, I'd love for you right now to get out your chart. Hopefully you got a chart um, that says superpowers in conflict with a picture of a goat and a ram. Let me tell you this. On the other side, when you get home, you might want to read through that. It'll just be everything I just talked about, but it'll give you dates. Um, that other chart, but for now, we're just going to look at the side that says superpowers in conflict. Just kind of hold that in your lap while I talk through what history has proven to be true. The ram is the nation of the bear, the silver chest and arms from the Nebuchadnezzar statue, and this is the Medo-Persian Empire. Two horns, one's longer, the empire of Persia, which grew stronger. We talked about last week, Persia was the more dominant of those two powers. And so the uneven horns on the ram represent that as the uneven side of the bear did. Um, Persia became stronger. The Medes, actually, King Darius was 62 years old when he began to reign. And so he was not a strong, young king. And he was the uncle of Cyrus of Persia. Soon as Cyrus could, uh, he consummated his conquests and the Medes began to diminish in their power. Cyrus had an army with more than two million soldiers. Historical records say that in their battles, the lead commander of an army would sometimes wear the head of what? 
a ram to represent princely power and strength. This empire pushed west and north and south with great intensity, the direction of Palestine, Asia Minor, and Egypt. But then the goat came along, the nation we saw last week that was the leopard and the belly and thighs from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. This is the Greek empire, and we saw that it quickly overcame the Persian empire. The prominent horn you've all figured out is King Alexander, the first king of Greece. He moves so fast as his feet never touch the ground. In a dozen years, he conquers the world. He definitely wanted to conquer Persia. He wanted revenge. Persia had um, attacked the Greeks near Athens. History tells of three major battles of victory for the Greeks over the Persians. And we see them like the goat on the ram trampling over that nation, Persia. To actually complete their conquest, King Alexander burned a major city of Persia in 330 B.C. And that was pretty much the end of their power. This goat comes from the west, we read. This is where Philip, the father of Alexander, came into power. He really united Greece, even though Alexander was considered the first king. But Alexander, um, you can't live like that, apart from God, and live very long. He died at age 32 or 33 in Babylon at the age, I mean, because of uh, alcoholism and malaria and fever. He died young. That was when the horn, the prominent horn of the, ram, of the goat broke. And then his land was divided into four parts among his four generals. Remember last week the leopard had four heads. Uh, here we see um, his land divided also from four horns in the west Greece, in the east Syria or Babylon, in the north Asia Minor, in the south Egypt, the four horns of Greece. What Daniel heard next would literally make him ill. And maybe you've had news before that makes you feel ill. This is what happened to Daniel. Look at verse 23. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation. He will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper. He will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many. And take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true. But seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. When Daniel saw his vision before Gabriel came to him, he saw the small horn. He witnessed what it was about to do. Gabriel just tells him more about the small horn. And now I want to tell you more about it as well. This king would arise and grow in power from Greece. 
in the latter part of the four generals. That's what Gabriel just told him. And, you know, sometimes we think, okay, they were a happy family. Alexander died. You had four generals. They carried on the work of Alexander. What, what does sinful man do? Immediately they're fighting with each other. So there's battles and fighting between these four generals. This is not a happy group of people. History has proven that the evil king that arises later from one of these four generals is King Antiochus Epiphanes, king of Syria, 175 B.C. He's an evil man, and he came to power after murdering the king before him. This lets you know how evil he was. The king happened to be his brother. That is how he came to power. He would be stronger than anything Daniel had ever seen because he wouldn't act in his own power. He would act from demonic power. Verse 24 tells us that. Because of this, he will successfully destroy anything he wants, including the mighty men and the holy people. That's referring to Israel, God's people. And this is another way to know if someone is controlled by Satan. They will hate the Jews. They will hate the nation of God. I just finished recently a book about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life. He was a German pastor, loved the Lord during the Third Reich in Germany. And from what he wrote and what the book tells you, you can see this supernatural strength that accompanies someone whose strength is satanic, which I believe was true for Adolf Hitler, a type of an antichrist. His supernatural rise to power. He wasn't even from Germany. His supernatural protection from death. When you read the book, there were people always plotting to kill him. And the strangest things would happen and keep him alive. His intense hatred of the Jews. The atrocities he committed against them. He took over the church. He outlawed the Old Testament. He changed the new. He liked to talk about Jesus as not being Jewish. I don't know how he did that. (laughs) He did that. Here's another satanic sign, verse 25. He will consider himself superior, a God. And remember, that's who Satan wanted to be in heaven. And that's why he was banned from heaven. The nation Israel would have this false sense of security in this king Antiochus of Syria not realizing he was a master of intrigue. And when he would make a covenant with Israel, and they would think, okay, we feel peace, we feel security, he would break it. When Egypt declared war on Antiochus, he counterattacked, and on his way back from battle with them, he decided to stop off in Jerusalem, and he looted the temple, taking out all the... Um, vessels and beautiful ornaments of the temple. Two years later, he came through Israel again, and this time he took captives. This is when he ordained laws forbidding the Jews from observing the laws of Moses, having their festivals, what they ate, couldn't honor the Sabbath. He punished mothers if they had their sons circumcised. He destroyed sacred scrolls that were there. And his ultimate act of rebellion, Daniel saw it at the beginning of this chapter, was he built an idol on God's altar, probably an idol of Zeus. And then 
to shake his fist in the face of God, he took a pig and sacrificed it on that altar. The unclean animal to the Jews. And in 167 B.C., he ordered the Jews to sacrifice swine and eat swine or face death. This was one satanic-controlled king of Syria. So Daniel is hearing this. He's sick to his stomach over what he's hearing. And then he hears something different, verse 25 that this man will also take a stand against the prince of princes. This is a name of Christ. Even though Christ is not yet physically born, one man put it this way, Antiochus blasphemed Christ to whom ultimately the host of Jewish people sacrifice and to whom the sanctuary belongs. But as he lived not by human power but by Satan's, we read from Gabriel's words, he would be destroyed, not by human hands, but by God himself. And Antiochus actually died a horrible death. He was insane. He was, um, his body was diseased with worms and ulcers, and he died going on his way to try to fight another battle. But he will not win. He did not win. And we're going to see who wins in a second. How long will Israel and the temple and Israel's people suffer under Antiochus's evil hand? 2,300 evenings and days. Um, one lady in our small group leadership calculated that to be just over six years. That would really describe the first time that Antiochus set his foot in Jerusalem, 170 B.C., until the time of his death, 164 B.C., and the Jews came and reconsecrated and cleansed the holy place. They would suffer under him for six, almost six and a half years. When he died, when the temple was clean, the Jewish people celebrated what is known as the Feast of Lights, what we call Hanukkah today. The restoration and cleansing of the temple. Okay, so when we listen to these things about this small horn that grew in power, King Assyria, Antiochus, his persecution of the Jews, do any of these things sound familiar to you? We immediately think of the little horn that came from the Roman Empire in chapter 7. So get out right now your chart that shows, I gave it to you last week, scheme of world events. That's from last week. And I want us just to glance at this while we talk through this. If you don't have it, look on your neighbor. Let your small group leader know, and I'll bring some more of these next week. Daniel's vision was fulfilled in Antiochus, but there is also a fulfillment yet to come. Daniel's vision also foreshadows the arrival of the Antichrist who will persecute Israel preceding the second coming of Christ. So look in the tribulation box last week. I think that's where we mentioned the Antichrist will be at work those seven years of the tribulation. Listen to the description of the Antichrist in Thessalonians and see how much it matches Antiochus. 
It's on your verse sheet. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. The Lord Jesus will overthrow him with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those that are perishing. We can see how the evil works of Antiochus match the evil works of the Antichrist in Revelation and in this scripture, but we can even listen deeply to Gabriel's words and see that there's a future fulfillment to what he's saying. Remember, he said this will be the end of the time of wrath for Israel. Israel's hard times did not end with Antiochus. Israel's hardest times will be during the Great Tribulation, just before Jesus returns. Also, Gabriel told us he will defy the Prince of Princes. We know that's a reference to Jesus Christ, and the Antichrist will literally go to battle against the Prince of Princes. You see that in the Battle of Armageddon at the end of Tribulation on your chart. And we know, though, that the Antichrist came from the Roman Empire and not the Greek, but I thought this was interesting. Some people believe that the Greek Empire will have a last-day existence. The territory that they had will comprise four of the ten kingdoms of the Roman Empire. So that means out of one of the four kingdoms of original territory of Greece, now covered over by the Roman empires, will come the Antichrist from some area that was originally part of the Greek empire. So this prophecy must go beyond Antiochus, look ahead to one whose work parallels Antiochus, but guess what? It's worse than Antiochus, which is hard to believe after we read what all he did. Um, In fact, It was prophesied it would be horrible. Look at your verse, Jeremiah, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jeremiah 30. These are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Cries of fear are heard. Terror, not peace. How awful that day will be. None will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, and he will be saved out of it. Matthew 24, Jesus' words. There will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Last week I mentioned, you'll look on your little chart, that we believe the church will be raptured before the tribulation starts, but we didn't discuss why we believe that. Let's read these verses, Revelation 3.10. Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I, I didn't put this one down. You might write this verse down. First Thessalonians 5, 9 tells us God has not destined believers for wrath. And then look at the very last verse on your verse sheet. First Thessalonians 4. 
We believe Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Those would be Christians during the church age. Fallen asleep doesn't mean that we're apart from Christ after we die, our bodies just waiting to see him. Our bodies are asleep, but Paul tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we believe in a temporary body. All believers are present with the Lord. He says here, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you, we who are still alive, this is right before the tribulation, who are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, if all of us die today, we're with Christ, and then the people who are still alive right before Christ's second coming, then they will follow us and be with us as well. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the trumpet call from God. The dead in Christ will rise first, our bodies. After that, we who are still alive and are left will also rise, be caught together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Our security. Praise God for that. You know, I always think as well... When you look at history in the Old Testament, God removes those who follow and know him from wrath often. Look at Noah's family. Lifted them up from the wrath that covered the earth. Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his family, were removed from the destruction and the wrath of God on that city. We believe we will be drawn to Christ in the clouds before the tribulation and all his saints will return with him after. And guess when our time of judgment is? Our time of judgment is at the time of the rapture with Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. And our judgment is really a time of Christ handing out rewards or loss of rewards. This is not a time of condemnation. Okay, so we take a deep breath here. Our future is secure in the midst of great spiritual conflict. Meanwhile, how do we handle conflict and chaos today, evil today? We can look around the world and still um, wonder about what's going to happen. Troubles face us. We are not to feel out of control. We are not to lose our sense of security. We have the Word of God. We have these promises that are enveloped with his love and his faithfulness to us. I wanted us to look back at Daniel standing by the canal because I saw four things in him that we can adopt as disciplines so we don't let the conflicts in the world overwhelm us. First, we invite the God of strength to approach you. Remember I mentioned Daniel's watching the ram and the goat fight it out, and then Gabriel approaches him. Gabriel's name is the strength of God. We try to go through our hard times apart from the strength of God. Invite God to come and approach you as Gabriel approached Daniel and say, this is big. Do this in your strength, and I'll follow you. Walk through dark times. Quit trying to do it on our own. His strength is our source of security. And I want to say this. Conflict is a good thing because it does push us to God. 
And every time I've suffered through different conflicts, I get to know God in a new way. That's something to be thankful about. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Pursue truth in God's word. Daniel was perplexed about the dream. He couldn't understand it until God's word spoke and said, let's tell him what it means. We cannot understand the difficult things in our lives or in this world apart from the word of God. But then we can. Remember, Gabriel says, you're just a weak man, but for some reason God's decided to give you divine interpretation. We have it. We're just weak people, but we have the words of God. Turn to the words of God. We'll find that we're standing on firm ground. Look at Psalm 19, 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light for my path. The unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Then give yourself permission to grieve. Remember Daniel, he responded to the vision. He was exhausted. He lay ill for several days. Does that mean Daniel didn't have faith? No, God gave us emotions. We can experience emotions. He was grieving over what he saw. Sometimes the conflicts in our lives are so hard and hurtful. We need to allow ourselves permission to experience what that feels like. When Jesus saw Lazarus in his tomb, he wept. He allowed himself that experience. If someone weeps, Romans 12, 15 says, don't go up and tell them, hey, get happy. For those that are weeping, weep. For those that are rejoicing, rejoice with them. But mixed in our tears, as in Daniel's tears, was the comfort and the presence of God himself. So we have security even in our times of grief. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 We do not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. And finally, we go about, we continue to go about doing the king's business. Daniel regrouped, he regained his strength, He healed under God's wonderful hand. And then verse 27 says he got up and he went about the king's business. Conflicts and suffering don't give us permission to abandon God and kingdom work and whatever it is he's called you to do. We get up, we go about the king's business because that's our security. That's where we find purpose and strength. And when we ignore that, we will find ourselves in tumultuous situations. Get back up. Go about the king's business, even in suffering, because that's what Jesus did for us. Look at Hebrews 12. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so you will not grow weary and lose heart. I wanted to have our closing prayer today be a song, a song that I love. We all know the melody. It reminds us again the short definition of security is Jesus Christ, God's plan for our eternal security before any conflicts even began, 
and he will win the battle. He is our security.